I was sort of picking on our world-class intern, Jack Stauffer, uh, as we were looking at the Advent season coming up and we were trying to divide out uh, preaching responsibilities, uh, uh, we knew we had four Advents and four sections in the Gospel of Matthew to preach. And as uh, it looked like in terms of who's going to be out of town when and that kind of thing, uh, I was kind of picking on Jack because he got the passage where the angel comes uh, to Joseph and tells him this wonderful stuff. I get the passage where the babies all die. And uh, it just didn't seem fair to me. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so here we are on that amazing passage. And yet, it, it's actually a great reality check. What is Christmas really all about? What is Christmas really all about? We tend to sort of sanitize Christmas and, uh, and, and um, uh, focus upon those things that are sweet and everything else and everything, but the, the reality of Christmas is this, that there is a great battle between evil and good, between the dragon and the child that you are a part of. So even as we look at this passage today, my hope is that we're going to understand something of this battle that we're going to see. The interesting thing about our passage of the slaughter of the babes in, uh, in Bethlehem is that John, the apostle John, some 70 years later on the island of Patmos, had a vision that included something of what we're looking at today about the, the fleeing of, uh, of Joseph to Egypt. And I want to start off today by reading from Revelation chapter 12. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 9 and then uh, verse 17 here. Uh, so you can get a sense of the spiritual warfare that we are under. And remember, John is, is communicating things as he sees them. He's not communicating them in order. But by looking at Revelation 12, we're going to see some insight into our passage in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23 today. So listen to this great cosmic conflict that, that is occurring around us that has to do with our story this morning. Revelation chapter 12. God writes, John, I mean, uh, John, God says, John writes, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, on his, and on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was, about to give, uh, who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to heaven, and the angels were thrown down with him. <clears throat> So that the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So what does all that mean? 
Well, we're going to find out in more detail in about four years when I preach through <laughs> Revelation. But for right now, it does describe the fall of the angels, the fall of Satan and that sort of thing. But for our purposes this morning, I want you to understand this great conflict that, that is centered in a sense around Christmas time. The characters here, the great dragon is the devil, which reminds us of the serpent there in the Garden of Eden that's been there from the beginning. Uh, we see here the, um, the child is, of course, Jesus. He's the one who rules the nation with the iron scepter. The woman is, is probably Mary or Mary as a representative, perhaps, of Israel, where the faithful, Jesus is a descendant of the faithful of Israel who, who came out there. So that we see here this great conflict that's occurring here and that even at the, at the very beginning with the birth of the Son of God, the devil was there to try to kill him in order to have a victory over, uh, over Christmas here. So my hope is today that you're going to understand the great conflict between the dragon and the child as we look at Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do look to you, God, in prayer. We don't see you, but we know you're there. We know you're there because your scripture tells us. We know you're there because the spirit within us tells us. We know they're there. you're there because the evidence of your creation is absolutely overwhelming. We live in an orderly world made by and created by a good and orderly God. We don't see the angels who are surrounding us right now, nor the demons who are also probably surrounding us right now, but we know they're there. For those of us who have fought the, the fight of faith for many years, we know the depth of the spiritual conflict that we are, uh, we are in the middle of sometimes. And we have won battles and we have lost battles. But we thank you, God, that the victory is secured. And we thank you for the encouragement of Holy Scripture that we are not alone. As a matter of fact, what we see playing out on earth is also being played out in the invisible realms of heaven. And we long for that day where earth will, it's apparently, heaven will apparently literally come down upon the new created earth. And we shall be there, and our neighbors will be angels. Until that time, in faith, we look and we seek to understand the spiritual realm that we are a part of, but we cannot see. Give us insight as we look at this great conflict between the dragon and the child in our Advent passage this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is something of a lengthy passage. We're going to break it down into three different parts. You'll find your home group helps insert might be of assistance to you here. Uh, we're going to see, first of all, the escape to Egypt in verses 13 through 15, the en- enragement of Herod in verses 16 through 18, and the exodus of Christ, verses 19 through 23. You'll remember that we had uh, last Lord's Day, last Advent, uh, the visitation of the wise men from, uh, from Persia, from, from the east, who had just come, and you might recall that Herod had said, when you find out where that baby is, you just come and tell me so I can go worship him too. And he actually, as we find out today, actually intended to kill Messiah, not to worship Messiah. So let's look, first of all, verses 13 through 15 in Matthew chapter 2, the escape to Egypt. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what has been spoken of by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. So you have these words of warning here and uh, this warning uh, from the Lord to Joseph uh, about fleeing here and uh, fleeing to Egypt. But why Egypt? 
Why Egypt? Well, one of the things you see in the life of Christ is the fulfillment of so many of the types and shadows of the Old Testament. Uh, the apostles tell us that Christ tabernacled among men. We had the tabernacle in the wilderness. We know from the gospel accounts that, that Christ was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. The people of God wandered uh, for, 40 days in the, uh, for 40 years in the wilderness. So you see these types and shadows. But part of that, the exodus from Egypt, is also fulfilled in Christ. As Hosea says, out of Egypt did I call my son. So the exodus is sort of a type of Jesus coming out of Egypt here. Uh, and, and it's beautiful that it's in Hosea. Because you remember Hosea, uh, which is uh, one of the most amazing uh, 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 prophets in all the Old Testament. Hosea had a wife who was a harlot. And she put her hope in her paramours who ended up abusing her and selling her off as a slave. And in that, she is a picture of Israel. They have put their hope in foreign alliances and foreign gods time and time and time again. And every single time, it ends up in slavery. Every single time. So Hosea is a wonderful example here, and yet it's also a passage of hope. Out of Egypt, even though you were enslaved to Egypt, out of Egypt, I will call forth my son here. So one of the things you see here is that, that there's always this constant battle. I mean, right, on the, right in, in this passage here, Herod's going to come and kill Messiah. He's going to come and kill Messiah. And we find that shocking, right? I've, I've never in my life seen a Christmas card, card with this story depicted on the cover of it. But it's very much a part of, of the Christmas story. And it's a good, sober reminder of the battle that we're in here and how God is going to protect his church, and God is even here protecting his own son here. So the rulers of the world are very seldom friendly towards the cause of Christ, and yet they're all going to lose in the end. They're all going to lose in the end. Isaiah 54 says this, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. Even if it appears that they're winning in this world, as they so often do, as you look at the news today, it looks like they are winning. There will come a time where they will be held accountable for what they have done uh, as they work for the dragon instead of the child. It says here the Herod is going to search and destroy him. Herod is just a long line of people that have tried to do this. Uh, and the Herods are extremely, you got Herod is evil, Herod the Great. We talked about him last week, right? His son's going to be evil and his grandson's going to be evil. His grandson's the one who's going to kill John the Baptist. So there's just wickedness in this whole family line here. So you got, the, you got Herod, he's just, he's just falling after Cain and the Canaanites and uh, the Egyptians and the Malachites, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks and the Romans, etc., etc., etc. There's always a program of man working for the dragon to go up against the program of the child. This is how the Psalms begin, right? In Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It's disappointing, but we ought to be sort of accustomed to this. I don't know if you follow um, the, what's going on with the Supreme Court. They kind of wait for their big cases to come towards the end of the year. 
And I actually, I haven't been up on it in the last few days. I don't know how this, this has been decided yet, but there's a charter school, uh, basically, uh, uh, court decision that's going on from the, the, the state of Maine, basically. Maine is so rural that uh, the state has to rely on various private schools to educate its citizens, and they give tax dollars uh, to those schools. Uh, but some... Uh, Liberal Karen <laughs> uh, in, uh, in the headquarters uh, uh, in Maine there decided that some of these religious schools were just a little too religious and that the money can go to religious charter schools, which most of them are, uh, and yet they, they got to be tempered in their zeal. And the thing that they said that they couldn't use tax dollars were, were, were if, we, if you were trying to indoctrinate students into your religion. By the way, they're not upset at mosques, right? They're not upset, uh, upset at any other religion other than Christianity. So in other words, if a school really took its Christianity seriously, they were in trouble with the state of Maine. Folks, that is, is that not the story of our era? The compromise of the church, the compromise of the Christian schools. It's okay to be religious, you just can't be too serious about it. And if you do, we're going to take you before the Supreme Court. Let them take us. Let them take us. Because we work for the child, not for the dragon. And we're going to win uh, in the end. I like, what, uh, I like what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon is my favorite Baptist. No offense to some of you. <laughs> but uh, he says this. There is a great clatter in the forges and smithies of the enemy. They are making weapons wherein to smite the saints. They could not even do as much as this if the Lord of saints did not allow them. For he has created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire. But see how busily they labor and how many swords and spears they fashion. It matters nothing for on the blades of every weapon you read this inscription, it shall not prosper. Folks, we win in the end. We win in the end. But there is a battle until the end, and we're a part of it. I love, I love the, the detail that Matthew gives us here. Uh, Joseph gets this vision, this word from the Lord, and he leaves while it is still night. Now, y'all, if I lived in Bethlehem, the last thing I would want to do is get up at three in the morning and walk to Egypt, right? Not, there's not a lot of street nights. There's no Uber, the camel's asleep, whatever. He, but that's what he did. He obeyed immediately. Delayed obedience is planned disobedience. And Joseph decided to obey immediately. He woke up Mary. They grabbed the baby. They probably didn't say goodbye. They got out of there immediately. There was a sense of urgency here. And goes to Egypt. Egypt was only 75 miles away. There was a well-established uh, road uh, between this area and Egypt along the coast there. Uh, Alexander the Great established a sanctuary for the Jews in Alexandria. And Philo says that by the year 40 AD, there were over a million Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt. So he would have probably known people that he could have gone and been with. He also had the gifts of the Magi to help fund uh, the, the trip. But one of the things I want to point out, and this is a lesson for you dads, you men. How is it that God chose to protect his own son in this situation? With legions of angels? With an earthquake? With a great fire consuming the forces of Herod? No. With a daddy. An obedient daddy. And that is normally how God chooses to protect his 
people, how he chooses to establish his homes through an obedient daddy. And yes, sometimes with an obedient mommy, of course, as well. But that's all he did here. He is the God of the universe. And what was his great weapon in his hand that he was going to protect his very own son and continue with the covenant promises made during Christmas time? Just the resolve of a holy man to do the right thing. Y'all, we need to practice constantly doing the right things because every now and again, the big decision comes up as well. Now we see here the uh, enragement of Herod in verses 16 through 18. And when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined by the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. So it says here that Herod saw that they had been tricked by the, the Magi here. Basically, the Magi got a word from God, and they decided, they decided to obey God instead of Herod. Herod had said, you go find them, come back and report to me. Who was the one trying to trick who? Right, Herod was trying to use the Magi in order to kill the Christ child here. So they, they, they made the right decision. They obeyed God instead of men. But this idea of tricked also includes sort of the possibility that they felt like uh, he felt like they, he was being mocked that the Magi were making sport of him. And when you're a tyrant and you're super insecure and you have no self-control like, the Herod, like Herod had, this would be the kind of thing that would enrage you here. According to Josephus, the great uh, general during the uh, Jewish revolt, it said that Herod was a man of great barbarity toward all men equally and a slave to his passions. A slave to his passions. One historian said the cruelty of Herod had become proverbial even in Rome. And it's interesting, that idea of very enraged here is actually a passive verb. It indicates that Herod had lost all self-control. He was literally, in a sense, throwing a temper tantrum there in the palace when he had found out, when he found out that the Magi had not come back and reported him. Folks, here, here's, here, here's one of these things. There's a principle here, too. We've got to learn self-control. Herod was trained for years in getting his own way, and it cost lots of people lots of things for him to be able to have his pleasure and his power and his influence and everything else. Often God will take away things from you in order to train you in self-denial that will end up turning into self-control. Herod is working for the dragon, and he has no self-control. Joseph has profound self-control and ends up saving Jesus from the wrath of this wicked, wicked men. So he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem, who were uh, two years under, under. He probably sort of ascertained from the Magi the time of the appearing of the star and did some, some, some mathematics backwards trying to figure out how old would this child be. And uh, it probably wasn't two years, but uh, as one commentator said, he, get, he, he, he included a ghastly margin of error. The baby may have been just six, nine, 12 you know, months old, who knows. But let's go ahead and kill all the people, the babies that are two and under, just in case. But we'll let's kill the males. The man was exceedingly wicked as he worked for the dragon. And the sin here is worse than just infanticide. 
He was actually trying to kill Messiah. So it wasn't just murder, it was blasphemy of the most extreme level. He was trying to be the dragon to snatch the baby being birthed from the, from the woman here. It's estimated that the population of Bethlehem at the time was around 300, maybe to 1,000, so probably a dozen children actually died in this incident, which is evil and tragic, and yet during this time of violence, it would probably hardly be noticed. There, I, to my knowledge, there's no secular record that, that, that mentions this. People were so accustomed to this kind of thing, it probably wasn't worth the headline. So it's sad, and yet these babies were probably some of the first martyrs of the church in a sense. They, they died in, in, uh, in the place of Christ. And then he goes on and quotes Jeremiah here. In Jeremiah 31, he says here, A voice was heard in Ramah weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. It's interesting. This is why you ought to read your Old Testament. Ramah was a border town between Judah and the rest of Israel. And when the Babylonian captivity occurred, they would round up all the people they captured and they would herd them off to Ramah for deportation into Babylon. If you want a modern-day understanding of this, it was a German railroad station with cattle cars. That was the sense of it. Ramah became odious uh, to, the, to the Jewish people as the place where people got sent off, perhaps never to come back to the promised land again. And Rachel, who is symbolically the mother of the nation, of course gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin. You remember her? She said, give me children else I die. And the interesting thing about that is she had Benjamin and she died during childbirth, right? She really did have children and she died. But she was buried near uh, Bethlehem at this time, so she's brought up as one who is weeping for the children as they are led off in captivity uh, into Ramah. And, of course, she's weeping, in a sense, figuratively for the death of these children here. Samuel Rutherford has this to say about that. O ye mothers of Bethlehem, methinks I hear you asking why your innocent babe should be the ram caught in the thicket while Isaac escapes. I cannot tell you, but one thing I know that ye shall, some of you, see a day when the babe of Bethlehem shall be himself the ram caught in another sort of thicket, in order that your babes may escape a worse doom than they now endure. And if these babes of yours be now in glory through the dear might of the blessed babe, will they not deem it their honor that the tyrant's rage was exhausted upon themselves instead of their infant Lord? You know, it's, it's, it's entirely possible that that sacrifice was really, really worth it, even from a personal level, because the surviving of Jesus until the point of his sacrifice uh, could bring salvation to so many people. It's interesting, uh, you think about this, and uh, uh, this, the sad part of this Christmas story, which normally we consider joyful and happy, it's... Uh, I, I, I can't help but thinking about an account I read of an American GI right after the occupation of Japan after the Second World War. Uh, the Japanese culture is very different from American culture, but a number of Americans were, were there to help rebuild Japan and uh, maintain the peace. And in 1946, there was an American GI that was walking from some storefronts, and he knew the Japanese loved giving gifts. And because of that, they had sort of adopted a version of American Christian, Christian Christmas. And uh, they didn't understand all the implications of Christmas, but they knew it was gift-giving and some things like that. And he walks by a shop window, and there's this huge Santa Claus in the shop window. And he's looking at it, and he notices something's very odd, and he gets closer, and he realizes that Santa Claus is actually being crucified. And as morbid and as strange as that was, 
to a certain degree, is not too far from the truth. Christmas reminds us that Jesus Christ had to die to take our place because we deserve death. And we deserve eternal judgment. So the judgment of God came upon him. Then we see here the exodus of the Christ in verses 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Go up, um, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over uh, Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go up there. And after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So he founds out Herod died, he died, uh, historically speaking, about a year later. And as Josephus said this about Herod's death, Herod died of this, ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to recovery. Probably none of you want me to read that again. It was not a good death. He suffered greatly. Job 20, verse 5 says this, The triumph of the wicked, triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless momentary. What kind of terror would Herod have experienced knowing that he would be facing the father of the babe he tried to murder? J.C. Ryle, the great uh, Anglican uh, bishop, says this, What has become of the Pharaohs and the Neros and the Diocletians who at one time fiercely persecuted the people of God? Where is the enmity of Charles IX of France and Bloody Mary of England? They did their utmost to cast the truth down to the ground, but the truth rose again from the earth and still lives, and they are all dead, moldering in the grave. Let not the heart of any believer fail. Death is a mighty leveler and can take any mountain out of the way of Christ's church. And he hears that, it says here, he hears of Archelaus was reigning over uh, Judea. Uh, and it's interesting what happened after Herod, as bad as he was, he was actually very skilled at leadership. And, uh, and he kept everything in control, partly through cruelty, but it kind of worked. And from the Roman standpoint, if it works, that's okay. Uh, but, uh, but his sons did not have Herod's skills, so they divided up his territory into three different uh, uh, areas here. And Archelaus, uh, he, he was given uh, responsibility over Judah, Edomia, and Samaria, but he proved to be so incompetent and cruel that the Romans deposed him in A.D. 6. So his, he only lasted a few years uh, after uh, the death of his father here. But I thought about that for a minute. I thought, how cruel do you have to be for the Romans to think you're cruel? I mean, I mean, these are the people that invented gladiatorial sport, right? Watching people slaughter each other. This man was cruel. And for example, uh, there was a, a bunch of pilgrims coming into Jerusalem at one point in time, and a mob uh, scene kind of ensued, and people tore down a Roman eagle off one of the gates. And in response to that, Archelaus had 3,000 people slaughtered 
many of them innocent pilgrims who just happened to be in the way at the time. So, so Joseph was justified in being, worrying about uh, his son here, and then God affirms his concerns. He says, yeah, don't go to Galilee, don't go back to Bethlehem, go on up to Nazarene, and that is evidently to fulfill some scripture. Now, what's interesting is this idea of he shall be a Nazarene actually is not included in the Old Testament. It's not written in the Old Testament. Some think it had been such a popular oral tradition that, that it could come down through a prophetic utterance here. But the point is this, is that, what do you know about Nazareth? Not a nice place, right? Uh, Nazareth is basically, uh, it was considered to be crude and rude and rough. Philip, you know, the, uh, the apostle Philip, who Jesus said he, he had no guile, said that nothing good can come from Nazareth. Uh, and uh, there's a lesson there. Jesus told, basically, God chose for his son the last place you would want to live in that area. Could have lived on the coast in Caesarea, could have lived in the capital, could have lived up there above the North Sea on that beautiful green areas where all the springs come out from the mountains and things like that. And he put him on this hilltop backwater village. I'm not sure what Donald Trump would call Nazareth, but it wouldn't be nice, right? It's probably an armpit, according to our former president. Not a nice place, but it's the perfect place for the suffering servant. The perfect place for one who would lead by example. Again, J.C. Ryle says this, Above all, let us daily strive to copy our Savior's humility. Pride is the oldest and commonest of sins. Humility is the rarest and most beautiful of graces. For humility, let us labor. For humility, let us pray. Our knowledge may be scanty, our faith may be weak, our strength may be small, but if we are disciples of him who dwelt in Nazareth, let us at any rate be humble. It's interesting, they would call, often uh, they would curse early Christians, the opponents, the people who worked for the dragon, the opponents of the church, would call early Christians Nazarenes, Nazarenes, that we would be called Nazarenes because of our humility. I want to just close going back with this idea of Rachel weeping for her children because it's interesting, as sad as that sounds and is, it actually is packed with hope. If you were to go back and read Jeremiah 31, you would, we would find out why. Basically, it says here that she refused to be comforted. The reason for mentioning Rachel weeping was to command a restraint from weeping. You see that in verse 16. And instead of looking back in sorrow, they were to look forward in hope and the hope of God. So after verse 15, where it talks about Rachel refuses to be comforted because of her weeping, verse 16 of Jeremiah 31 says this, Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from reaping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. And they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future. I, I get so discouraged sometimes by how discouraged our young people are about the future we'll never be able to afford health care we'll never be able to afford a house you know we can't do all these things and um they just seem to be so down folks there's every reason to hope you if you work for the child and not for the dragon you will be rewarded and in a sense nothing nothing that's bad out there in the future can destroy that hope and then the greatest part of that is after verses 16 and 17 come Jeremiah 31 30 and through 34. We know what that is, right? It's the promise of the new covenant. 
with all those laborious, difficult covenants that came through Moses and all of the rules and the regulations and the do's and the don'ts, and then comes this amazing new covenant that promises to put that law on our hearts. We obey out of a sense of love, not just a sense of, of duty. And, of course, the new covenant closes with this, and they will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's a great promise, isn't it? And that was after Rachel weeping for her children. So folks, don't weep. Or weep for a while, but stop weeping. Because our hope is in the child, not in the dragon. As Dan Durini says, the first Christmas was the beginning of an end for the di- or evil on earth. We are actually going to win the war, even though it seems like sometimes we're losing the battles. Let me go back to Revelation chapter 12. Ponder these as we close this morning. Revelation 12, 10 through 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when they faced death. The dragon will lose. The child will win. And those who are with the child will reign in glory forever and ever and ever. So with the sadness of this passage also comes the hope of the fulfillment of the new covenant promises. Father, we thank you for the, the truth and the, the difficult truths of Holy Scriptures. So often because of the way, the nature we are, we wish we, our Bible was a Hallmark card. <laughs> and it just tells us nice little sentimental things all the time. And, or it could be like so many preachers who are out there just talking about how Jesus is going to make you healthy and rich and everything else. But we thank you, God, that our God is a God of truth. And if our God is to be a God of truth, he needs to teach us evil and good and show us even the difficulty of obedience at times. I pray, God, that we would follow after the example of Joseph and be a mighty warrior in the child's army and that we would do all we can to protect others. Bless us now as we go even from this sober passage and celebrate the Advent this coming week and that we would just draw closer to you and know that our God reigns and that at the end the dragon will be put down and that the child will win and that you will restore all things and make all things new. Bless you, Christ, for Christmas. In Christ's name, amen.